Excellent. And then, uh, you know, wrapping this conversation or this section, I should say, with um, a discussion on semiglutide, which I think is going to be an important medication for cardiologists to know because of the patient populations that we serve and treat. Uh, and, you know, I think it's certainly um, an important um, therapeutic armamentarium for, you know, risk factor modification in our patients. Do you want to talk about semiglutide? Yeah, I, I, you know, this is this is another medication that represents an expansion of our understanding and knowledge beyond cardiology. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. It's 2022. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Uh, this is season four of Parallax, and we begin um, where we left off in 2021, uh, you know, having Dr. Niger on the, on the show again as part two of the wrap-up of what happened in 2021. Um, I apologize if my voice is a little twang. I'm recovering from COVID-19. And wherever you are listening, I wish you safety and health. And if you haven't gotten vaccinated or boosted yet, my recommendation is to please do the same. Um, You know, I'm not trying to downplay Omicron, but the good news is that it is not as severe as the ancestral variant or the beta variant or even the Delta variant. So, you know, stay safe, get vaccinated. And with that, Suk, welcome, and thank you for doing this for us again. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you again, Anka. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. It's great to be uh, joining you to discuss some of these studies from 2021. I'm sorry to hear about the COVID. It's, uh, it's incredibly rife. It's really ripping through the United Kingdom, and uh, the case rate is absolutely phenomenal. And it does, you know, the, it, it does look, unfortunately, that the vaccinations are less effective for Omicron. Uh, but what we have seen... Um, is that there is a, a huge reduction in hospitalisation, and the severity of the illness is much is much lower compared to the other variants. Um, younger people seem to be getting it, um, and, and that's not to say that it uh, yeah, unvaccinated people are uh, going to be completely fine because we still have full intensive care units. But uh, as I echo your message for everyone to get vaccinated if they can, because it does definitely reduce the severity of the illness. Absolutely. So with that, um, you know, we're going to jump into cardiology and, uh, you know, where we left off in 2021 and start discussing about heart failure. And I know that there was, um, you know, a lot of data presented on SGLT2 inhibitors and uh, non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. I can't wait to get started and learn more from you. Yeah, let, let's let's uh, dive in. So the SGLT2s really are proving to be the true blockbuster drugs uh, probably of this decade, really, um, right up there with the advanced um, developments in the PCSK9 inhibitors. Uh, but these appear to have uh, added value in a cohort of patients that really ha- um, haven't had very good treatments. And the um, audience will be familiar with SGLT2s over the last three years uh, have had uh, great outcomes in reducing cardiovascular events and uh, in, in diabetic patients, and this was shown in a bump, uh, group of pivotal studies, which were, uh, were meant to demonstrate safety, but seemed to show uh, improved outcomes when you add SGLT2s to diabetic patients. And then there was the DAPR-HF study, which showed uh, overwhelming benefit in patients with reduced ejection fraction. So those with cardiac impairment, if you uh, add in dipigliflozin in 10 milligrams to standard of care, there was a huge reduction in uh, outcomes. And I, I happened to be in the audience at ESC when this was presented and there was an audible gasp in the room uh, with massive room. And you could hear it wherever you were. And the, the uh, data was very compelling. And then it's worth t- saying that 
Um, this has now been replicated in a number of different studies as well. So this does look like this is likely to be a class effect. And on top of DAPR-HF, there's now the Emperor Reduce study, um, which has demonstrated that in, in Pagliflozin, which uh, is another SGLT2, has a similar reduction in hard endpoints. And we, this is where we can start to debate a little bit on the, um, the, the nature of the endpoints used in these studies. But in Emperor Reduced, uh, there was a, a similar reduction, around a 25% um, re uh, hazard reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization in patients with reduced ejection fraction. And it was highly significant with a p-value of less than 0.0001, so very significant. And overall, if you look at the data from uh, Emperor Reduced, you see a pattern that's very, very similar to that of um, DAPR-HF. Some marginal differences, uh, slight um, differences in the level of mortality reduction that was seen in, the, in this particular study. And there are lots of reasons for that. And perhaps the um, sample size was a bit smaller uh, and perhaps the follow-up was a little bit um, uh, shorter, which may have driven that. And there was perhaps um, a higher rate of drug discontinuation in the study. So that, that can all account for that. But then also this year has come out the SOLOACE uh, study, which is a slightly different SGLT2 drug. It's, it's a drug that um, it's unfortunately an orphan drug now because the, the manufacturer has seemingly run out of money or funds to be able to uh, to do it. But I think the outcome of Soloist is so good that one of the other companies may uh, take the drug on. And this particular medication has a combination of both SGLT2 um, and 1 inhibition. So the listeners will know that SGLT2 is a, a co-transporter in the kidneys. And by inhibiting it, uh, essentially the patient will pass more sugar in their urine. And therefore, there is a reduction in total blood sugar levels. So HbA1c improves. Um, there's a loss of calories. And so there tends to be a weight reduction and blood pressure seems to come down. And there seems to be some uh, off um, uh, additional components. We don't quite understand how it's achieving such an improvement in heart failure. There may be a change in um, uh, the heart muscle using ketones. There appears to be some uh, atrial receptors, uh, parts of the atrial muscle appear to use um, SGLT2 um, uh, enzymes. And so there may, may well, therefore, be an additional benefit there. But uh, in the sotaglyphosin uh, study, this drug also binds SGLT2, SGLT1, if I can say that, and that's in the gut. And therefore, you um, uh, absorb less uh, sugar and therefore there's an alternative additional uh, an action and in that study there was also just like it's been seen with DAPR-HF and in um, Emperor Reduce we see a significant reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. So heart failure hospitalization is a little bit of a softer endpoint but of course it's an important clinical endpoint to patients because uh, heart failure patients often spend long periods in hospital requiring IV diuresis and the costs of hospitalization are highly significant, both here in the United Kingdom uh, and the average um, inpatient stay can be 21 days, which is very long. And uh, that's a huge, um, uh, it, particularly for older patients, you know, where uh, their quality of life is already significantly reduced. Being in hospital for that length of time is, is really quite profound. So I, I don't discount that as uh, the va a valuable outcome measure. And then to top it all off, so not only do we have this highly valuable set of drugs working in those with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. This year, we've now seen uh, probably the big blockbuster study of the year is the Emperor Preserved study. And that's the, it's shown that these drugs are useful in those patients with so-called preserved ejection fraction. And uh, again, we can debate over this because um, the study isn't really classical preserved ejection fraction. It's predominantly uh, patients with an ejection fraction of more than 40%. And it took those patients, around 3,000 patients in each arm. And these are all patients who are very well treated. In fact, very high levels of both uh, ACE inhibitors and ARB use and beta blocker use. So it kind of implies that this is a mixed cohort of patients where um, the, the cardiologists looking after these patients are giving them medications that ostensibly don't have a classical indication in, in preserved ejection fraction. Uh, and what they found by adding impagliflozin on the standard of care was there was a significant reduction in the combined endpoint of both cardiovascular death uh, or heart failure hospitalization with a 21% relative risk reduction. 
and the number needed to treat of 31. So that's uh, really quite impressive in a cohort of patients that traditionally have not had uh, medications that have been proven outcome. You'll you'll know that last year, uh, the Entresto uh, study looking at heart failure with preserved rejection fraction was narrowly negative, and therefore the drug doesn't get a license uh, extension for it in that particular cohort, certainly not here in the UK. And But these uh, impagliflozin represents the first SGLT2 inhibitor that has been uh, proven to have benefit in this cohort of patients. And the benefit was seen in both patients with and without diabetes, and all the different subgroups had similar benefits. So it is quite a historic um, outcome, and it is important. And I think this study was rightly applauded when um, the, when it was first announced earlier this year. And it was it came out at ESC this year in 2021, and it came out at a time where actually it was too late for it to go into the guidelines because, of course, Theresa McDonough and her coll- colleagues who rewrote those guidelines have to set a stop date for them. So it's not currently in guidelines, but I can imagine that it will be added in soon. And we have to wait for the DELIVER study. DELIVER will look at the use of uh, dipigliflozin in a very similar cohort of patients. So those patients with uh, ejection fraction of more than 40%. And we'll begin to uh, hopefully get to see, uh, again, a class effect. And then we can start to work out when we start giving these medications to patients who uh, often have a heart failure syndrome. So breathless, they're fatigued, often have ankle edema. But when you uh, perform an echocardiogram, the rejection fraction can typically be around about 50 to 55 percent. So some people may argue that this is uh, mid range and there are lots of different terminologies now for heart failure. Uh, But certainly we've now got um, uh, medications that have um, a huge benefit over and above the traditional use of ACE and beta blockers in this cohort. So what are your thoughts on on, uh, this uh, this study and uh, these medications? Yeah, so, you know, excellent summary. Thanks for summarizing so eloquently the studies on SGLT2 inhibitors for us. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I think these drugs are going to be, uh, I think, the next statins, um, uh, you know, if they aren't already, you know, particularly in the kinds of patients that we see in clinics. Um, uh, you know, I'm a strong proponent of quadruple backbone therapy for patients with heart failure with reduced detection fraction which include a beta blocker, an SGLT2 inhibitor, um, you know, and ARNI, which is the combination of Psychobitro and Valsartan, and jalocorticoid receptor antagonist. I think that backbone, the sooner you start patients on that backbone, I think the sooner they are recipients of the benefit um, with, you know, several percentages of absolute risk reduction and mortality, uh, certainly heart failure hospitalization as well. So, you know, I've certainly gotten very comfortable in prescribing SGLT2 inhibitors in my clinical practice. Um, one of the side effects, which, you know, I'm not sure uh, you've come across, but I certainly have come across at least in a couple of patients is, is dehydration. And I think in part that is because of the glucosuria that you were describing early on as a mechanism of action. Have you encountered that in, in clinical practice with prescription of SGLT2 inhibitors and and if you have, then, you know, what is your strategy in terms of uh, co-prescription with diuretics? Yeah, that you're, you're absolutely right. So the, the, uh, we have seen it. And um, we, when we first started using these medications, we worked very closely with our renal physicians. At my particular institution in West London, uh, we have a massive renal unit and our nephrologists are incredibly keen on these medications because uh, the caniglifosin study, the canvas group of studies have shown that these, these medications preserve um, renal function over time. And so these are proving to be very useful in these complex metabolic patients, often with renal dysfunction, often with diabetes. They often have stiff ventricles. We usually give them quite a lot of diuretics. And you're absolutely right that when we start giving them, they can get quite a big diuresis. Now, the amount of diuresis they get is directly proportional to their um, blood sugar levels. So if they're diabetic, they tend to get quite big diuresis. Um, And then as the blood sugar levels begin to normalize, they get less. And so that dehydration should become less of a less of an issue. But what we found is that we can usually cut back on the diuretic. Um, I've got a few patients where uh, I've ended up keeping the diuretic the same because it didn't quite achieve what I thought it was going to achieve. But in the majority of patients, I've now seen that we can usually cut back on the fruzamide or Lasix, as you'd call it, uh, and um, or bumetanide. And um, 
you know, it, one thing that you have to be a little careful of is that you expect to see a slight change in their EGFR. The calculated EGFR is likely to, to fall a little after initiation. And then what we see is a little bit of a rebound and then normalization. And that's normal. And that can lead to people becoming very concerned and it can lead to people stopping the medication. And certainly here in the United Kingdom, uh, I understand that there's going to be a license extension so we can give these medications right down to super low uh, EGFRs, which I think is very useful because, you know, it's been shown time and time again that they have a renal protective effect. And the the other thing that's uh, unusual about them is even though they work predominantly through the kidney, even those patients with renal impairment, typically on very high doses of Lasix, uh, still in, infer a benefit, even though their kidney function is reduced. And therefore, you think, you know, maybe this medication won't work. It's not that uh, the kidney function is a contraindication. It's just that we think that the medication is less likely to be effective. The kidney function is, is low. So I do think uh, they're very useful. I think it's very important for cardiologists to become familiar um, with the use of these drugs. It's certainly um, discussing with patients about why you want to use them. Uh, I, I think it's always worth telling patients that they, they, um, uh, hygiene needs to be very important because uh, urinary tract infections, uh, fungal infections uh, in the genital areas are, are very common. And I've certainly um, had to become very familiar with um, how to deal with that uh, in our cohort of patients. So I think that's important uh, advice. And primary care physicians, certainly here in the United Kingdom, are very experienced in dealing with that. And so uh, working in conjunction with them, usually we can keep patients who are suffering you know, the consequences of very sweet urine, which means urinary tract infections or, or um, uh, uh, candida in infections. Uh, usually we can keep the patient on the drug. And it's, it's been rare for us to have to discontinue it, either due to um, dehydration or, or infection. Um, so what is, um, I mean, do you have a, a favorite among SGLT2 inhibitors. I know there's a class effect between dipagliflozin and, you know, canagliflozin and empagliflozin. I typically try to prescribe dipagliflozin simply because it's an easier, you know, dose and, and frequency combination to remember for me. But do you, do you have a particular choice amongst uh, your prescription patterns? So we started off prescribing empagliflozin most because the original set of studies that showed um, profound effect in a post-MI cohort of patients were with empagliflozin. Uh, and then what we found was uh, the, um, the DECLARE set of studies that um, unfortunately uh, perhaps showed a, a more modest benefit compared to empagliflozin showed that in the uh, kind of more standard kind of patients that you may see, and particularly in primary care or those patients without major um, cardiac events, without significant uh, MIs were probably better off just having uh, dipigliflozin. And so we've then ended up going down the dipigliflozin route more commonly. And then DAPA really, DAPA HF really sealed the deal with that. So we're probably now prescribing dipigliflozin in the majority of patients. And, you know, as you say, it's uh, with all, but with all of these drugs, whilst there are different doses, I think in the cardiac use, it tends to be a flat dosing structure. So we tend to just prescribe the single dose and we tend not to escalate it, certainly for, for, for cardiac indications. So uh, um, we're, we're happy to use either impagliflozin or dipigliflozin at, at a flat dose. Excellent. So um, let, me, let me ask you something. In terms of patients who get diagnosed with, you know, de novo acute decomposited heart failure, are you comfortable prescribing these medications in hospital or is that something you do as an outpatient? Because, you know, I think that that's an important distinction for some of our colleagues, who, you know, who think, uh, you know, it may not be wise to start the prescription in hospital, whereas, you know, you now have accruing data showing that, you know, the sooner you prescribe them, even when these patients are in the hospital, diarist, you know, transferred to a telemetry bed, and getting ready for discharge, you know, the sooner you put them on the quadruple backbone, the better it is for patients in terms of adherence and follow up. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a very good question, because remember that the license and indications is for stable um, heart failure uh, as opposed to acutely decompensated. However, there are um, dedicated studies there. The, the names and the acronyms of the study have, uh, escapes me, unfortunately. But there is actually a study that uh, was also presented at HA. 
just recently that has shown that it is safe to start in patients who've acutely had acute decompensation, usually when, uh, once you've got them off IV uh, diuretics uh, and usually at the time of discharge. And so it is safe. And that is what we do. In a similar way, there was a time when, um, you know, we weren't starting the Arnie's de novo. You, you, we were going through the process of uh, initiating an ACE, escalating all the way up and then making the switch, which is laborious. Uh, and then it was eventually proven that uh, the Arnie can be started uh, de novo and uh, and even in acutely decompensated patients. So as you become more familiar with these drugs, I think people will become uh, relaxed about when they initiate them. And technically, that is a, a creep. That is an indication creep beyond where the licensing of the drugs were. But uh, this is the simple reality. And and just like, you know, it's been well shown with uh, when beta blockers first became indicated, there may be listeners who are old enough to remember there was a time when beta blockers were contraindicated in heart failure. Um, rather than being an absolute indication, it was the absolute opposite. And there are still physicians out there who will stop beta blockers when patients come in with decompensated heart failure or, or um, stop it if there is an intercurrent event in the fear that it will cause um, heart uh, decompensation. But actually, it's been shown that if you do that discontinuation, then the patient's much less likely to have the drug reinstituted. And then the patient is exposed to poor outcomes. And as has been shown in, in lots of studies now, if you stop these medications, particularly in the, the, the cardiomyopathies, you find you get a um, destabilization, you get a reduction in ejection fraction. And uh, actually, we do the patient harm. So it's usually better just to keep the drug on. So the earlier you get it on, as you say, and the longer you keep it on, the better it is for the patient. Um, and we have to counsel the patient about that. And we have to tell them sick day rules so they understand there are certain times um, that we, we we drop the drug, just like, you know, we should, if you get diarrhea, uh, you should probably stop the ACE inhibitor as well because you'll get dehydrated and we don't want an impact on the kidneys then. And that's also an indication for holding off the SGLT2. But uh, as long as we tell and counsel the patient that, I, I think these drugs can be used very safely. Excellent. So moving on, uh, do you want to tell us and educate us about the non-steroidal and relocorticoid receptor antagonist that's on the horizon for patients with heart failure? Yeah, so this is uh, this is was new to me, and I read with interest about this um, as well, uh, you know, as looking through the various studies of the year. And uh, look, we there, there was a study called the Figaro DKD study, and it was uh, essentially. A, a study looking at a unique drug. It's a non-steroidal mineral corticoid antagonist it's called phenerenone. Uh, so it's a bit like spironolactone or a, a plerinone, but it seems to have this added value that it, it reduces uh, the progression of diabetic kidney disease. And it does so by about 20%. So it's like the SGLT2s that have a uh, benefit in patients with kidney disease and it reduces the likelihood of developing renal failure, these medications seem to do something very similar. And um, what what it, this particular study, the Figaro DKD study was, was looking at patients who've got renal impairment, um, uh, the kind of moderate renal impairment that are typically of patients in, with heart failure that we tend to see in our clinics. So not patients who are on dialysis, but patients with reduced uh, GFR. And what they found was there was a reduction in clinical events with a 30% reduction in heart failure admission by the admission, uh, the addition of these drugs. And uh, we also saw uh, improvement in renal outcomes with a, um, a, a basically a sustained um, reduction in EGFR loss. So that's important and renal death. And uh, these is basically a very important outcome because uh, big reductions in EGFR means that patients end up on dialysis and renal death, as we all know, is uh, usually a very terrible outcome and having severe uh, end-stage renal disease is a very frightening situation for many of our patients. But the reduction in heart failure events is important, particularly in this particular study, because these patients were all uh, very well treated. They were all um, uh, patients with ACE inhibitors and on ARBs, very high percentages. And what is interesting in, in this particular study was classical overt heart failure with reduced ejection fraction was excluded in the study, but a lot of the patients had preserved ejection fraction. So that means that these renal patients with preserved ejection fraction, when if we can add a medication like phenerenone, we see a reduction in outcomes in clinical events we see a reduction in heart failure events and we see a preservation of kidney function. And so you begin to see that 
that this is a, a class of medication that our renal colleagues on the, the nephrologists will be very, very keen to use. And uh, it seems to be a new whole new class of treatments that hitherto we weren't really uh, aware of. So I think that this will be a, a group of medications that we'll end up using probably together with drugs like the SGLT2s. We don't know. There, there won't be head to head studies, I imagine, for quite some time, but I imagine that they will be used in a complementary fashion. So I thought this was a, a new class of medications that was worth mentioning. And I'm sure we'll hear more of it over the next uh, few years. Excellent. And then, uh, you know, wrapping this conversation or this section, I should say, with um, a discussion on semiglutide, which I think is going to be an important medication for cardiologists to know because of the patient populations that we serve and treat. Uh, and, you know, I think it's certainly um, an important um, therapeutic armamentarium for, you know, risk factor modification in our patients. Do you want to talk about semiglutide? Yeah, I, I, you know, this is this is another medication that represents an expansion of our understanding and knowledge beyond cardiology, um, and it really means it's quite good for cardiologists to um, to become general physicians again sometimes. And semiglutide represents this. And the reason I wanted to mention this and discuss this with you, uh, um, Ankur, is because we we work very closely with some of our endocrinology colleagues, and uh, within our trust, we have a very large bariatric service who um, support patients who are overweight and help uh, them lose weight, typically by performing operative procedures. And then in the last year, there was this really compelling study called, um, called the STEP1 study that looked at a, a GLP-1 agonist, uh, semiglutide, which is an injectable. And uh, so it, patients have to inject it uh, usually once a week. And what, the, what they were doing were looking at non-diabetic patients who were all obese with BMI of more than 30. And uh, basically looking to see what weight loss was achieved in, in uh, over a period of time. And what was remarkable in this study was a randomized control study, well performed um, uh, with an international cohort of patients, was they had really quite profound weight loss. And what we were seeing was around 15 kilos of weight loss um, where, and which was sustained over a long period of time, usually occurring after uh, three or four months use of use and the study continued typically for around 68 weeks in total and so a 15 kilo weight loss is really quite profound and what we saw overall on average was around a 15 percent reduction from baseline in their weight which was then sustained so i think this is really quite profound because i'm sure in in your service you have patients who are big and that will contribute to a lot of their overall morbidity so big patients tend to have obstructive sleep apnea and sleep apnea drives af and it drives hypertension and it contributes to hyperlipidemia and the hyperlipidemia leads to coronary disease and so if we could just help patients lose weight we find that uh, that we can probably improve a lot of their cardiovascular outcomes as well and so i've been referring patients to, to my endocrinology colleagues who've been using semiglutide. Now, at the moment, it's technically off, off label. It's not uh, yet got its indication for this. But because a group of studies have now all been very consistent in showing this benefit, they've been prescribing these medications uh, for our patients. And we've seen really quite profound uh, and sustained weight loss, which then leads to all the secondary benefits. So I've genuinely seen patients with improved blood pressure and what's great about it is when they lose weight, people feel better in themselves. They exercise more. They don't feel as embarrassed walking around on the road or going to the gym and doing things like that. And so it it basically leads to a positive cycle of weight loss, health improvement. And all of that is really, really helpful. And uh, I'm sure you've had patients over the years who say to you as a cardiologist, well, you know, doc, what can I do to lose weight? Um, and, you know, we give them the standard advice. And I really usually emphasize the 30 minutes of walking every day. You know, I don't try not to advise people to do huge amounts of exercise because I know that often patients won't be able to sustain that. So I say, look, really what I want you to do more than anything else is just to walk for 30 minutes per day. And if you can do that at a pace that's fast enough to make you feel breathless, to feel fatigue, that's usually enough um, uh, to, to start triggering weight loss. But then if you can add in a medication like this, as well as doing those lifestyle measures, I think we're really going to be uh, at the cusp of improving a, a lot of patients' um, overall health 
because you know as as you know we're essentially living in in an obese world now where obesity isn't just an epidemic it's endemic and um, the percentages when you look at them are absolutely frightening um, you know the US more so but as I understand it even now in the UK with BMIs of over 30 uh, we're, we're kind of hitting the 30% level so really quite significant is this something that you guys are familiar with is this something that you're using Anka? No, no. So again, uh, you know, an extremely important study which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And, um, you know, like you said, obesity is endemic, um, is, is certainly a modifiable risk factor and has been, has been shown in observational studies to be uh, a cardiovascular risk enhancer if, if not, uh, you know, a, a, a traditional cardiovascular disease risk factor, certainly a risk enhancer. And you know, one, one, one may argue it's, uh, it's you know in in my assessment of what I've read in observational data, it actually is a cardiovascular disease risk factor. And so you know we we do have, um, if if not vast majority, you know certainly uh, a high percentage of these patients who are you know either overweight or obese, and um, you know once they have an event, uh, I think they are intersecting with the healthcare system, uh, you know definitely with the cardiologist and and. You know, I think it's an important opportunity for us, not only as cardiologists, but, you know, like you mentioned, as general physicians to uh, sort of um, implore them to reduce weight and adopt lifestyle intervention and lifestyle modification. And I think I, I probably misspoke. I, I think I said semi-glutide, semaglutide. So that's... Yeah, sem- I, I, I call it semi-glutide as well. It is technically semaglutide, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so semaglutide and, you know... I, you know, cost, you know, could be a deterrent, but, you know, I think in terms of convenience, it's a once a week uh, subcutaneous injection. Um, it's 2.4 milligram dose. And, um, you know, in, in the trial, the way the results were published and, and resulted, you know, it, 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 there was a significant, a significant reduction, weight reduction in these patients. Um, so I, I think, you know, lifestyle intervention plus this medication in, a significant percentage of patients that we see in the clinics uh, is an important lifestyle intervention, I think, from at least, um, you know, for patients, but also from from a cardiovascular disease management risk factor reduction standpoint. So I agree with you. I think it's important to, you know, at least be aware of this option so that you can refer your patients to, you know, your endocrinology colleagues or to the general physician with this option of, you know, hey, my cardiologist was saying that there is this drug out there. It's called semaglutide. Uh, you know, I'm interested in, in its prescription. What do you recommend? I think that that kind of conversation with someone who is prescribing this more than you and I are, I think is is an important armamentarium in, in our patient's arsenal. Uh, so, so thank you for discussing this with uh, the Parallax audience. Yeah, I, I, I think it is useful. And, and I, I think we need to think a little bit beyond where we traditionally think. You know, we spent much of our first podcast uh, talking about um, antiplatelets, which obviously as cardiologists we're very much obsessed with, and we're obsessed with uh, anticoagulants, and and then uh, relatively niche things like fr- fractional flow reserve and, and things which are interesting to interventionists or some interventionists. Um, but the, these things like semaglutide is uh, genuinely a, a change that could alter because you can imagine as the various different companies start to compete in this space. And remember, GLP-1 uh, um, agonists have had proven cardiovascular benefit as well in the diabetic cohort. So this is uh, a medication that has perhaps not as strong as DSGLT2s, but it does have a benefit of its own. So th- there is true merit in, in us pushing uh, the, the uh, diabetologists and the um, endocrinologists to, to institute these medications where, where, they, where they feel they can safely do so. Absolutely. So moving on, I think um, let's start talking about, um, you know, a couple of the surgical trials from our surgical colleagues, uh, you know, that that uh, were presented last year and I think are important, uh, you know, both for the cardiovascular community as well as our patients. Do you want to talk about them? Yeah, I, I think, well, well, let's talk about Avatar because Avatar was uh, an important study that came out at AHA. And uh, AHA was quite notable in the fact that it had a number of um, surgical studies and it's striking because it is difficult for our surgeons to uh, perform studies. It's hard to randomize patients at the time uh, of having a major surgical intervention. It's hard for surgeons to um, want to recruit. It's hard for patients at the time of going under the knife 
to to choose to be randomized for something that could um, you know is a very frightening and emotive subject and so the avatar study was interesting because it, it looked at patients that I'm sure you'd be interested in so this is those patients with uh, severe aortic stenosis but looked at patients who were asymptomatic the management of aortic stenosis has always required the patients to be symptomatic before we intervene on them. And the reason that's been set is because surgical intervention, as well as uh, TAVA, has uh, a degree of risk associated with the, uh, the intervention in itself. And if you've got an asymptomatic patient, then the feeling is that actually the, the, the risk of the surgery outweighs the relative risk to the patient. Of course, once a patient has breathlessness or syncope or chest pain, then we know from the classical Bronwald uh, curves that were generated many years ago, uh, ostensibly from, from recall, actually. So there is limited date value to, to those curves, but uh, they, they looked to see the outcomes and we know the outcomes diminish quite bad, quite quickly in patients with symptoms. But what uh, in Avatar, what they wanted to do is a study performed in Serbia. They wanted to look at those patients who had got asymptomatic aortic stenosis and to randomize patients to having an early surgical intervention versus standard of care, conservative approach, waiting for the patient becoming symptomatic. And it was a study that was designed to follow patients until they'd had an event. And the total number of patients recruited is relatively small compared to the kind of studies that we've got used to looking at in, in the uh, cardiology space, like the type of studies we've just talked about with drugs. But of course, that's because the um, uh, number of events um, needed to drive the outcomes was felt to be relatively small. And so they only needed to recruit around 157 patients in total in this randomized study. And what they wanted to look at was all-cause death, acute myocardial infarction, stroke, or unplanned hospitalization for heart failure. And they also looked at a number of other secondary outcomes as well, including 30-day mortality, which, of course, is only really going to happen if you've had a surgical intervention versus um, uh, compared to being conservatively managed, major bleeding, which, again, is more likely in those patients being surgically managed, thrombobolic complications, and then repeated events as well. And what they showed was quite striking. What they showed was a significant reduction in the composite outcome, primary outcome, uh, in those patients that had early intervention compared to uh, being conservatively managed. And they saw a, a hazard ratio of 0.46 and the p-value was 0.02, so highly significant. And that cat um, is similar to data that's now was shown a couple of years ago, I think a year and a half ago, from South Korea which also showed that um, surgical intervention at an early stage in asymptomatic aortic stenosis was also of benefit. So now you've got two randomized control studies that appear to show um, that these asymptomatic patients uh, could be considered for early intervention. There are limits to it. I mean, these studies are small uh, and um, a number of the deaths that occurred in the uh, control arm were uh, perhaps for non-cardiovascular reasons. So in fact, a, a couple of the patients actually died from COVID uh, because of course, at the time that this study was being done, intersected with uh, the COVID outbreak across Europe. And so there is some limitations in how we interpret it, but it is useful data because we all have patients on our books that we see regularly who've got asymptomatic uh, aortic stenosis and we kind of push them, don't we? We always ask the patient these symptoms and we ask them the questions. And I think they begin to learn the questions that we're going to ask them. And, and uh, I imagine that after a while, they probably just relent and say, oh, yes, I'm having these. I'm ha yes, I'm having fatigue. I'm having breathlessness. And it is quite hard in, in patients with aortic stenosis. They tend to be typically in their 70s. Patients are slowing down at that time. We keep telling them that they've got this severe condition. And so patients then slow down also. And then it's hard to know whether they really are having exertional chest pain or exertional breathlessness. Uh, and so it is a tricky group of patients to follow because you're never quite sure whether you're doing the right thing. But with these two studies now, I think there is uh, data to suggest that um, you can push for early surgery. I suppose the qu key question that's going to come from this is, it, uh, do these findings extend to TAVA um, or TAVI as we would call it here in the UK or TAVA as you would in the US? Uh, hard to say, I would say. It's uh, certainly something that we shouldn't automatically assume is the case because, of course, patients going for TAVI tend to be a much sicker cohort of patients. Um, and, of course, the technology is different and, and the type of intervention is different. So uh, I would say that it's intriguing, but we definitely don't have enough data to say that with certainty. And, and you, you, my understanding is that, that you're, you're a, um, a structural interventionist as well, uh, Anka. So uh, is this something that you guys do on a routine basis? 
Yes, so, you know, I think um, patients with aortic stenosis who are asymptomatic and, you know, certainly moderate um, moderate to severe or severe are a conundrum, uh, are a clinical conundrum. And, um, you know, we do our best as, as physicians and clinicians to elicit symptoms and, you know, dive deeper into the history. Um, you know, it's um, interesting because, you know, we're, our bodies are so well-engineered that, you know, they modulate how, how much they want to exert, even if there's a little shift. And you, you may, as a patient, may not realize how you've been slowly dropping your activity levels, but, you know, your family members or, you know, folks who are near and dear to you and live with you may then, you know, after about a year say, you know what, um, I've seen a, I've seen a gradual decline in your activity levels. Now patients may not be able to elicit that symptom themselves, but if it's not uncommon that, you know, if, if someone's accompanying, um, you know, their father or their husband, they'll be like, you know what, there actually has been a gradual decline over the past one year, you know, maybe a year ago, you know, you used to walk more than a mile. Now you can barely make it a couple of blocks and you, you want to take some rest. So I think it's, I agree with you. I think it, we, we do uh, in patients where we see objective findings and we, we cannot correlate them with symptoms. We tend to elicit symptoms. We, we do our best in, in eliciting those symptoms um, but it's it's tricky because you know I know that there are data available where if you compare age and sex match controls in patients who had versus didn't, did not have an aortic valve replacement, so everything else is matched. The only difference is these set of patients had their aortic valves replaced. You know, it actually their overall survival curve drops for some reason. Uh, so. You know, I, I, you know, and you know, granted, you know, our surgeons are excellent, and aortic valve replacement is one of the most commonly performed surgeries, you know, on the planet. And the mortality is less than one percent, you know, unless that that one percent happens to be you, then you know, obviously it's different. But you know, that aside, I think if you compare patients, like I just said, you know, there is a difference in overall survival curve. So, I do think. It's an important decision for patients. It's not something that we can just, you know, say, look, you know, now we have these data and, you know, patients do well, uh, you know, because, you know, if, if they're not, if, if they aren't really symptomatic, then what are you really improving? Right? Yeah, yeah. So the, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it is a very tricky area. And of course, uh, you know, uh, I know there'll be many um cardiologists out there particularly if they subscribe to a much more conservative way of thinking they would say look you know if the patient doesn't have any symptoms how are you truly helping them but i i agree with you there there is good data to suggest that um uh, even in patients with asymptomatic aortic stenosis there is a reduction in their um, mortality there are mortality uh, levels there's morbidity as well uh, and of course if you get an intercurrent infection, we have all seen patients like this, you get a pneumonia or you become uh, systemically unwell with sepsis, say from a urinary tract infection. It's all very common in patients in their 70s. Then the aortic stenosis can contribute to a significant deterioration in those patients. And so uh, now with these data, I think we can have a little bit of a better conversation. I think it's always been quite perverse before we tell the patient you've got this severe condition but we're not going to do anything until you develop some really bad symptoms and patients going to look at us a little bit aghast and we say, well, no, that's just how it is. Uh, but now with these, I think in select patients who want to go ahead and put themselves forward, I think, you know, you've, you've, you've got a little bit more support. Obviously you have to have your surgeons on board. Uh, and uh, I think surgeons naturally want to operate. And so uh, I think, you know, that they will welcome, welcome these data. And uh, certainly our surgeons have been very keen to take them on board and integrate them into, into our pathways. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think to the point where we could extrapolate these findings to TAVR, I think that is an evolving area. I think there are ongoing randomized clinical trials in patients with, you know, asymptomatic aortic stenosis, severe. I'm, I'm not sure if, um, you know, we are onto our moderate aortic stenosis patients yet. I do know that, uh, you know, patients who have moderate aortic stenosis per hemodynamic criteria based on echocardiography and have a depressed ejection fraction, again, tower unload is going to, you know, shed more information on these patients. You know, these could be, uh, you know, low flow, low gradient, severe aortic stenosis patients. Um, 
So, uh, you know, these are, you know, obviously exciting times, you know, both for us as, as practitioners, but also our patients, because, you know, these, these fields, which, you know, have been, you know, stagnant for so long, now, now with the advent of technology in both uh, the surgical space, as well as the transcatheter space, you know, we, we are seeing an evolution in the treatment paradigms and, and management strategies for these patients. For sure, absolutely. I mean, the the the, the speed of, of advancement and the way that the technology has improved in just short periods of time is really quite astounding. And I think we're we're very fortunate to be practicing um, cardiology and medicine at this time because it really is offering patients really quite profound um, and useful treatments for them. And uh, so, you know, I think I think it's great to to be practicing at this time. Absolutely. So moving on, left atrial appendage occlusion, is that the final study we're going to discuss for the show? Yeah, I think so. I think this is uh, an important uh, study, which I, I don't know what your surgeons have been doing for some time. Certainly ours uh, have routinely taken off the left atrial appendage at the time of surgery. So the concept is if you're having um, cardiac surgery, say you're having your mitral valve uh, change or you're having aortic surgery, then um, the surgeon may uh, in in many places, remove the left atrial appendage, which is this, think of it like the appendix of the left atrium, this little recess, this little groove that is often the site of a clot and th- um, th- thrombus, which can then embolize. And this is very frequent that in patients with atrial fibrillation that they developed a thrombus in this location, and that can be a cause of major stroke. But there hasn't been hardcore evidence. Much much of it's been from observational studies and cohort studies, which we know have a lot of weakness and a lot of confounding. And it's really uh, fantastic that this investigator-led study performed predominantly from Canada, uh, randomized patients who had atrial fibrillation, who were undergoing some form of cardiac surgery, so a mix of bypass uh, mitral valve intervention or, or aortic valve surgery. In fact, I think the majority of the patients um, we're having some form of aortic intervention, just as you say, aortic uh, valve surgery is one of the most common operations performed. And they randomized them to have a removal of their left atrial appendage. And they took around 4,700 patients and they randomized them. And the, uh, the what they basically showed was a significant reduction of around 33% relative reduction in stroke over three and a half years with uh, around 4.8% of stroke rate in the patients who'd had the removal of the left atrial appendage and around 7% in the arm that uh, were conservatively managed and did not have the left atrial appendage removed. And so uh, this is um, powerful stuff. This tells us that we can essentially half the rate of stroke in patients uh, in with a relatively simple procedure that can be done routinely at the time of another operation and the, the, all these patients had paroxysmal AF or, or, or permanent AF, and they all had an indication for anticoagulation, uh, with the average TRADS2 uh, VATS score being of 4.2. So all the patients were anticoagulated. So this benefit was seen over and above the anticoagulation um, that was used routinely in these patients. And so that's really quite compelling as well. And uh, perhaps there are some criticisms you can talk about, you know, the fact that perhaps uh, some of the operations being performed was a little bit niche. Uh, some of the mitral valve interventions, mitral valve surgery uh, can be complex and uh, can, is performed by usually very um, specialist, subspecialists, essentially, in that particular cohort. And that can limit the generalizability. But what's great is that this was an international study. There was a good representation um, of, of the UK. In fact, um, colleagues from my hospital were contributing to this particular study. And so uh, they all feel incredibly vindicated that what they've been doing in their routine clinical practice over many years has been proven in a randomized control study. Now, the difficulty is uh, immediately, I think people as you know, we're interventional cardiologists, they'll look at it and say, look, this uh, means that we should be putting in things like watchman devices or um, there is a percutaneous stitch technology that can be used to close off the atrial appendage. I don't think we should do that. I think um, uh, those of us who may look at this study and say, yes, uh, layoffs three basically tells us that we can go ahead and start putting in watchman devices because what the surgeons were doing was really quite different. They were uh, usually closing off the appendage or cutting it off completely or over sewing it 
Um, so one of the weaknesses of the study is that they, they didn't standardize the type of approach they used. And I suspect there probably isn't quite enough numbers for them to do subgroup analysis with great power. But um, but I would say is that uh, it certainly tells us that we should encourage our surgeons, the, uh, surgeons working in your hospitals and your facilities to to be considering this in the patients they're operating on. Is this something that your guys do, Ankur? Is this something that's routine in your hospital? So, yes, you know, I think um, in patients with atrial fibrillation, if they are being subject to open heart surgery for any other reason, most, you know, most common surgery is coronary bypass grafting, as you know. Um, And if it tends to be a common comorbidity, then, you know, more often than not, surgeons would would go in and and ligate the the appendage. Um, So I think that was it was being commonly done and commonly performed. And I think LEOS3 just... um, provides evidence to the practice that was being done, you know, or commonly. Um, I I agree with you. So I suppose the difficult question then comes is a lot of patients after bypass surgery um, often have runs of atrial fibrillation. And partly that's because of the edema and the handling and the the various uh, milieu changes that can drive the atrial fibrillation. But uh, often it's just because we see fast AF in patients. If you monitor patients for long enough, particularly many of our cardiac patients will have runs of atrial fibrillation. And it leads us to a bit of a quandary. You know, should should all these patients have prolonged monitoring? Should they be given an anticoagulant? And uh, if the surgeon hasn't taken off the appendage, then should they have done should they have done so? So I think it kind of pushes us into to to removing the left atrial appendage in. Uh, in most routine operations when it can be performed whether it should be done in patients who've in sinus rhythm uh, is less clear but i can understand why some of our surgeons have begun to move in that direction because you know if you look at the surgical literature rates of af straight after surgery are really quite high and if they're taken off the appendage i think they feel a little bit more relaxed about it yeah absolutely no i i agree i think and and you know i think the the surgeons now have you know, randomized clinical trial evidence to support um, what they were doing routinely in clinical practice. So I think, again, you know, I think congratulations to the surgeons for, you know, concluding a trial as as comprehensive as LEOS-3. You know, like you alluded to at the beginning of the show, it's it's difficult to recruit patients in a surgical trial and randomize them. So, you know, I think just congratulating both the surgeons and the patients likewise. Absolutely. We should encourage our surgical colleagues to to do more studies and uh, even studies that look like it's a solved or an, an answered issue, um, because the reality is relying entirely on cohorts and registry data is, is usually not enough for us to be definitive about answering questions like this. And it's it's really good. Um, and when we get that answer and sometimes we, we find that we've been doing the wrong thing, you know, and, that, and that's also uh, been true. There's been lots of medical reversals. And it is important for us to perform the randomized control study to, to check what we do is actually the right thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, Suk, thank you, uh, um, you know, again, for such, a, such an eloquent and detailed discussion. And it's always a pleasure to have you on board uh, for the show. This is part two for the 2021 wrap up. And, you know, do um, drop us your comments on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. I know both Suk and I post when the, when the episode comes out and, you know, leave us uh, feedback on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And Suk, thanks again for being here with us on the show. Thank you so much, Ankur. And I, I hope the enjo- audience enjoyed it. I look forward to all their comments. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.